The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Dear God, I believe. Pray, help my unbelief. Amen. This morning, shall we look at a big word that plays a huge role, obviously, in the Gospels and should play a big role in our own lives? The word faith. Faith. Now, in the Old Testament, that word is only used uh, twice, and its meaning is probably of secondary importance. Uh, However, there are other uh, words and phrases which are used which mean the same thing. And those phrases are that a person or uh, a region might present as, as righteousness to God, might have righteousness to God. And essentially, that is a faith statement because in the Old Testament, what stood for faith essentially was acceptance, pure acceptance. That is, that we take the word of God on its face value. So, Abraham is told by three strangers who just wander up to his camp that he and his wife will be the parents of a child, even though they are in their 90s, or Sarah is in her 90s, and he is 160 years old. And perhaps we could forgive uh, Uh, Sarah from a a short girlish uh, giggle uh, at this uh, biological uncertainty. But 
Moses does, I mean, Abraham doesn't say anything. He does not say anything at all. Or how we understand the next story. Uh, Abraham is in the fields, and God says to him, I wish you to take your only son up into the holy mountain as a sacrifice. There are no protestations. There is no anger. There is no refusal. Instead, Abraham does as he is commanded. That is after righteousness. After righteousness. Moses, a wanderer who fled Egypt after a murder, comes to Midian. And in Midian, he sees a girl that takes his fancy. Her name is Zipporah. And he wishes to marry her. But God says, not so fast. Your prospective father-in-law, Jethro, wants you to hang out here for about 15 years looking after his flock. That's pretty long uh, running in period for a prospective son-in-law. And this comes to him from God. And again, there is just acceptance, acceptance. And throughout the Old Testament, that is the main way that man responds to God's great plan. Remember also, of course, that in the Old Testament, while we are dealing with individuals, we are also dealing with nations. Uh, we heard today about Isaac, and then suddenly he's called Israel. And that is not a mistake. He is the representative of Israel, just like his favorite son, Joseph, will move on from being thrown into a cistern, which would, of course, I think, stress anyone's faith, being left to die, and then being sold to a group of sand pirates who are moving along their way to Egypt. What was he thinking of? He was thinking that this was what God wanted him to do. And as it turned out, seemingly a horrible thing, which would demean his brothers and cause them to sin, turns into a wonderful thing. Because Joseph is a dreamer. Remember what the brothers said? He's a dreamer. Let's kill him. I think that says quite a bit about perhaps art or literature or poetry that they weren't ready for that. But he uses this dreaming to save them and then to lead to the Exodus experience. So in all of these experiences in the Old Testament, I think what we can take away from it is this acceptance. But acceptance without quibbling or whining or any of the things which, frankly, sometimes I do, when I feel I'm being asked to do something, which I don't want to do. I think that is an important, an important part of faith. 
And in the New Testament, there are all sorts of uh, quotations and words about faith, because as you can imagine, it really is in a way central to the message that uh, Christ lived and died, that he was Lord, that he is the Son of God, that he died, that he was crucified, and most essentially, that he rose from the dead. Those are all faith statements, as Paul would have you believe. But perhaps uh, you have heard uh, from the the letter to the Hebrews, uh, now faith is the assurance, the assurance of things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. Now, that sentence, as you, as you heard, is full of these tensions and contradictions. And I think that's, that's the purpose of them, is that that is what faith is. It is. It's full of these, these tensions, but nevertheless, they are grounded and founded in God and in what he chooses to do with us. So let's look at the New Testament story that is before us. It is a faith story, a creedal story. It is a, a story that helps, uh, helps us and the church understand what faith really means. Now, if you recall, Jesus and his disciples have been busy. They've just finished feeding 5,000 people. And there's lots of commotion and lots of excitement and lots of extra baskets of bread and there's fishes all over the place. And after the crowd leaves, Jesus goes further up into the hills to pray by himself on land. And he tells the disciples to get into the boat and go out into the sea. And they do so. And immediately we can see this distance between God and man. And of course, the disciples are on their own. They're on their own. And we're we're told that the sea rises up and that the waves in the Greek torture, torture the sides of this little boat. And they are terrified. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where they've been. They don't know how to save themselves. They are in terror. And if we remember that right now we're sitting in the nave, the nave, such that a symbol of the church is a boat. And that is where the disciples are. They are the church without Jesus, buffeted by storms, ripped apart by arguments and dissensions, And remember that uh, in Old Testament and New Testament times, the sea was more than just the sea. It was the the, the marker of chaos. You remember on those uh, medieval maps, there be dragons there. It represents the lack of control, the potential danger to life and limb. It, it is a terrifying thing. It is not just a benign storm that's blowing up. It's even more than that. It is the monster chaos in their face right there. And they are terrified. And so our Lord finishes his prayer with God, which, by the way, 
unfortunately, seems to be a rare event. He doesn't get a chance to do that. This is the second time in Matthew's Gospel when he can actually do that. But he leaves his prayer, and he walks across the waters, and he becomes close to the boat in the midst of this storm. In, you will note, the darkest hour of the day, the fourth watch from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., the time of the wolf, the time of darkness, the time when perhaps people's hope seems to drain away, as does their faith. And our Lord stands before them and essentially says, what's with you guys? Come on. I want you to have the faith to overcome this chaos because remember, faith is an active thing which shows that you are in relationship to me and that you know that God is your king. And in response to that, Peter says, if you are, if you are the Son of God, if you are Jesus, I wish to get out of the boat and walk on the waves in the midst of this storm. And Jesus lets him. And of course, what happens to a man? Only gods can walk on the water, at least in, cl in the classics. Only gods can walk on the water. And he looks down at this storm and at this chaos, and he sinks. He sinks. And our, our Lord lifts him up and puts him safely into the boat. But there we see faith misguided. In fact, those words, if it is you, sound familiar. They come, if you remember, from Satan. If you are Lord, take yourself up to a pinnacle and throw yourself off so that you can prove you are the Son of God. Now, that's the sin of idolatry. It's the sin of idolatry. And Peter is participating in it. Does he really need to prove that this man, his leader, and the love of his life is Jesus, the Son of God? Perhaps, but he doesn't need to prove it by getting out of the boat. And here's the thing I think that is most important for us. Peter lacked faith, but the response is that if he really had a lot of faith, he could walk to Jesus on the water. That is wrong. That is evil. It fills us with this idea that uh, we can manipulate by being extra, extra, extra good what happens to us in a dramatic way, like walking on water or flying or whatever it is, some huge miracle that we engineer for our own basis. So where do you think Peter should be if he is truly a man of faith? Where should he be? You all know he should be in the boat. Of course he should be in the boat. He shouldn't get out of the boat. There's no reason for a person of faith to get out of the boat. And so we learn from Peter, but that is an understanding about the stewardship of God and his love for us. And so I think our Lord can teach us 
um, as presented very succinctly uh, in St. In Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, and by the way, if you ever want a very brief uh, statement of one's faith, one need only say that I must confess that God is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. By saying that, I think we truly uh, fill our lives with the faith that we need. So I've talked about uh, acceptance. I've talked about the personal nature uh, of the relationship with our God. And I believe that's based to a large extent on an awareness of what our God gives us. That is gratitude. You see, if you can understand the hugeness of God's generosity to us, I think it becomes much more simple to understand that, indeed, we can dare to believe. Look at all the things he has given us. We can dare to believe. And also, perhaps, we can dare to have a set of conduct which will agree with what our Lord wants us to do and help our fellow man. And so that insight, that realization, I think, fuels faith. Uh, you understand, you say, uh, I, I'm grateful for the day, I'm grateful for my life, I'm grateful for the love that I see in so many places. And because of that, because of that, I can see God's face. And if I can see God's face, even for a little bit, or even if it's blurry, then maybe I can follow him. And as Paul says... All you have to do is try to really believe that you are not in charge. You are not in charge, but that God is and that he loves you and cares for you in the, in the, in the form of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.